following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Let's turn our attention uh, to the readings for today. This is the third Sunday in Advent. Uh, And in reading these texts this week, preparing for today, I found myself gravitating toward three themes that I would like to share with you today. Now, once is once is silly and uh, t- twice is a trend. So if, if I come back to you another time with a three-point sermon, <laughs> um, you need to remind me that that's not the type of thing that I usually do. Uh, maybe I'm just getting too old and I've just got to do these three-point sermons. But it's funny that these three things just sort of bubbled to the surface for me and they were kind of across all of the texts from the lectionary. Um, and they're all in keeping with the, um, the, the themes of the season of Advent, um, which if you don't know, is a season of expectation and waiting. Um, if you're newer to Artisan and haven't been part of a uh, more liturgical church tradition, you might be wondering, why don't we sing any Christmas carols during December at church? You might even be wondering it in that stern, angry voice. <laughs> um, well, the answer is because it's not the season of Christmas yet. It's the season of Advent. Liturgically speaking, the church celebrates and observes the season of Christmas after Christmas, right? The 12 days of Christmas, that's not the 12 days leading up to Christmas. It's the 12 days after Christmas. Um, And so the month of December, most of it is Advent. And that's one of the many ways that that the church is weird compared to the rest of society. Um, And the thing about Advent is is that it is a season of waiting. We often say it's a season of expectation, but to me that sounds a little more high-minded than most of us probably feel about the matter. Right? Don't you feel a little bit more impatient than would be indicated by the uh, word expectation? <laughs> I know I do. Advent is truly a season when we try to balance our hope for every good thing that God has promised um, and that Jesus brings to the world against what actually feels like desperation and sometimes weakness and longing. Because the the work of Jesus began at that first Christmas here on earth, right? And we, yes, in the season of Advent, we we do try to celebrate that. We we sort of have to imagine what it might might have been like to wait for the promised Messiah. But also, we recognize that that work won't be complete until his final return, which is something we can barely wrap our minds around. What does it even mean? And we don't have to imagine ourselves waiting in that sense. We feel it every single day, the way that that God's work is clearly not finished in the world as we look around us. So, with all of that in mind, um, I have these three themes from the Advent readings today. The first theme is this, sorrow will come to an end. And to get at this theme, I'm going to read to you one of the other texts from today, it's one that we, haven't had, we didn't have a chance to put into our liturgy. It's Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. It will be on the screen, I believe. And I want you to, to pay attention to all of the poetic language in this text. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. 
they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sorrow will come to an end. I say that because it's right there in the text. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Look at all the amazing poetic imagery that's in this text. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Or strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. For me, as a person who uh, has some arthritis in my hands, and they, they feel weak sometimes, and in my knees, and I like to play volleyball, <laughs> the idea that my hands would be strengthened and my knees would be firmed up sounds pretty great. <laughs> Maybe that's just middle-aged guy talking. <laughs> I am in my mid-40s now, officially. <laughs> what? I, don't, I didn't hear what you said, and I don't intend to. Um, <clears throat> That having been said, I am going to make a brief little aside here to acknowledge something else that's in this passage, which is that there's lots of, uh, again, I think poetic imagery about very specific disabilities. Right? You heard the, the part, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Um, it even says the lame shall leap like a deer, and by the way, that's an, the translation is fairly new, but it's old enough now that like, I don't think they would use that word again now. Um, and let me just tell you, if, if you're using the word lame to mean like uncool or stupid or something like that, please just eliminate that from your vocabulary. That's an ableist slur. And I didn't realize that. I was using it constantly. And then someone told me that, and I've tried my best to stop doing that. Um, but it says, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the speechless shall sing for joy. And we, we don't have time to read the other gospel reading that comes into, uh, into play in today's lectionary assigned readings, but there's also some of this language in that gospel reading as well. Uh, by the way, that's a great reading um, where John has gone from the person proclaiming out in the wilderness like to make a way for Jesus. Now he's in prison and he's like sending messages to Jesus saying, are you really the one? Um, is all that bombast that I did, I called people vipers, you remember? And now he's in prison. Um, and he's not so sure anymore. That, the, wonderful. Like, we could spend lots of time with that passage. I encourage you to read it on your own. The point is, there's some of the same language about disabilities in that one, in Jesus' response. And what I want to acknowledge is that these passages make an assumption, 
which many actual disabled people reject, which is this, that all people with disabilities would prefer not to have those disabilities. That's not actually true. And I would say maybe these passages go even one step further, kind of assuming a theological almost framework that every disability is an inherent sign of brokenness or incompleteness or of a flaw in a person's very nature. And that's not, also not true. Um, but so passages like this can be difficult for people with disabilities, as you can imagine. And so I would just say, if that's true for you, or if you know someone for whom that might be true and have conversations with them, I would love very much to give you permission to feel whatever you feel when this type of passage is read and not feel like you have to kind of argue yourself into a place of accepting something you're not ready to accept or maybe never will be uh, willing to accept. Um, of course, nobody, no, no one member of any community speaks for that entire community, right? We were, we're clear on that fact. So there is a, a variety of responses that people with disabilities might have to this type of text. And there's lots and lots of stuff that I could say to talk about this or try to explain it or make anybody feel better. But I think the most important thing is this, and I'll limit myself to this, acknowledging that it's a much bigger topic. That in this passage, the central theme is that sorrow will come to an end. And that's described in all kinds of ways in this text, some of which do mention the uh, removal of disabilities from people. And so if you are a person who has a disability, and there are many people who do, many disabilities are not visible to, uh, to everyone else, so don't assume anything, first of all. But if you have a disability that doesn't cause you sorrow, I think there's probably no need for you, and we should not place any expectation on you, to join the biblical author in that assumption that a disability needs to be removed in order for the sorrow to be removed. Is that making sense? And then lastly, on a practical level, for non-disabled believers, we, I think, can not only, I mean, we can, we can certainly try to handle texts like this with care and become aware of the fact that that is how it is received by some people. Um, but also, we can do whatever we can to remove barriers and to increase access. Right? Um, by the way, this is probably the most important thing that we can, as believers, remember. Never pray for someone's disability to be taken away from them unless they have specifically asked you to do so. And even then, I might proceed with some caution. That, if you're going, like, who would do that? Well, <laughs> we have some friends in the room who could probably tell you and give you specific names. Um, it happens a lot. Don't do it. If you feel the need to pray for someone unasked, just a little bit more generically, perhaps. But anyway, um, I think we as, as Christian people ought to be fighting for access and inclusion for people with disabilities because one of the things that I've learned over the years is that a much greater sorrow than the disability itself is the way our society treats the individual who has the disability. All right. Um, <clears throat> let's return uh, to that summary phrase, because once again, this is the whole point of the passage, whether the details click with you or not, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Everything in this passage is intended to point you toward that last verse that I read, verse 10, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Are you a sigher, by the way? <sighs> <How many? sighs> you know, um, 
One time, not too long ago, Tracy asked me, my wife Tracy asked me, what are you sighing about? And I was like, I was not aware that I had been sighing. <laughs> and then I was like five minutes later, <sighs> does the world just feel heavy enough that you want to make that noise all day, some days? What sorrow are you feeling today? What causes you to sigh? What are you, what specific thing are you longing will come to an end? This is the promise of Advent, that sorrow and sighing will end. And, and it won't just fade away, it will flee away. I love that. All right. I just looked at my watch. These, the second and third themes are going to be much quicker. <laughs> um, but they're really, I think, so beautiful to think about. The, the second one is this. God work, God's work takes generations. So Mary's prayer, the Magnificat, which, by the way, is super um, left-wing, <laughs> if you read it in certain ways. <laughs> um, like, the, cast down the rich. All that. It's very interesting. It could be, and has been used at many, like... Um, uh, anti-work type of uh, settings. Anyway, <laughs> it's not usually spoken of that way in church. It has that phrase that's super familiar to so many of us, especially if you were raised in the Roman Catholic Church. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And then she says later in the prayer, God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And if you were here for the call to worship, uh, and, if it, and if it was actually Psalm 146, which there might have been some debate about, uh, it said that the Lord will reign forever, for all generations. And we hear this generation talking, we're like, oh, it's so beautiful. God's work started in the very beginning, and it goes to the very end, and it spans all the generations, and we pass it down to our children. And then you stop and think for a second, and you go, wait a minute. That means, perhaps, that I'm not going to get to see the end of it before I die. And that's a come-to-Jesus moment when you realize that it's maybe not actually going to be true that every little thing will be all right before you go on to the life to come. How many good things, by the way, do we do that, that take a whole generation? I wonder. I wonder. Probably not that, that many, it seems to me. On the other hand, something I read in the New York Times this weekend is that every 19 minutes, a child is born with a dependence on opioids. One in eight American children is growing up with a parent with a substance use disorder. And it dawned on me as I was reading that, that we are always transmitting something to the next generation, whether we intend to do so or not. And yes, although there are sometimes circumstances that are beyond our control, I think we could do a lot of good in the world if we simply chose more intentionally and carefully which things to pass on to our next generation and which things to let die on the vine that is our own generation. Mary said, God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, and we trust and hope that we can be a part of that chain, part of that link. And then here's my third theme for Advent this uh, this Sunday. Third Sunday in Advent, three themes. Sorrow will come to an end. God's work lasts and takes generations. And then thirdly, look 
underground. Did you happen to notice in the passage from the prophet Isaiah that I read how much like agricultural floral stuff was going on there? We had crocuses blooming in the desert. We had reeds and rushes and, and water plants springing up out of the desert as the haunt of jackals became a swamp. <laughs> the only time you want a swamp is when the alternative is the haunt of jackals, by the way. <laughs> the thirsty ground, it says, becomes springs of water. What a beautiful, I love the imagery in this passage. The thirst, can you picture thirsty ground? It needs so much water, and then it becomes springs of water and provides uh, water to everything around it. So many of the beautiful poetic things in this passage are only found under the soil which means that they are invisible to people who are unwilling to get their hands dirty. God's work is an organic process. It's like growing crops, which is great, except that none of us have the first clue how to grow crops. I can't even keep a cactus alive. <laughs> it literally does not need water. <laughs> I put it on my desk and it dies. James chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Be patient, be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. In this Advent season, when we're waiting for the coming of the Lord, James tells us, be patient. He says, the farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. What if you don't get to see the fruit of everything God is doing during your lifetime? What if it is only going to be there for the generations that come after you? Will you still do it? Will you still be part of it? Will you still feel compelled to participate with God in the recreating of the whole world if you don't get the benefit for yourself? One of my favorite sayings is something that I thought was attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson and I made the mistake of Googling it and it's not probably. It's probably some French philosopher. It figures. Um, <laughs> It says, blessed is the one who plants trees under whose shade they will never sit. We planted some trees out here a couple years ago when we had to remove some other ones that had died and were going to be a safety hazard. And we lost a lot of shade. And some of you uh, contributed money or time into getting those new trees in the ground. And, and we're not all going get, to get to sit under their shade. But somebody will. That's what the work of God is like. And if we want to see sorrow and sighing flee away, if we want to be part of God's multi-generational work, we have to be, we have to have the patience of farmers. We have to be worrying, willing to be dirty and cold and awake in the darkness before the dawn and after the dusk. And most of all, we have to be patient. So, uh, my friends, let us be Advent farmers this season. And if you wanted to write down on a little post-it note, I'm an Advent farmer and put it on your bathroom mirror, I think it would really freak out your roommate. <laughs> <laughs> and it would remind you of, uh, <laughs> of the work we have to do. All right. May God make it true in you and in me and among us. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.